Dickens musical entitled Where the Asphalt Ends. In a moment, we're going to have a chance to learn the true story of a missionary hero who served the Lord in the country of Brazil. If you're just joining us, you're joining us on a great service to join us with. In fact, uh, as a congregation, we've been looking forward to this, and uh, we've got both the children's choir that are ready to get up there, as well as the adults will be joining us. But our ushers are coming forward right now. If you are a first-time visitor, perhaps first time in a long time, we want to say a special thank you for joining us here at Faith. And one of the ways we do so, normally on a morning, but we're going to do this this evening as well, is by giving you one of these gift bags. So even as they make their way back towards the back doors, if you simply discreetly lift your hand, or if you brought a visitor, you point to that visitor, make sure we get one of these bags into their hands as a way of saying thank you for joining us here tonight at Faith. It is our privilege to be able to put this on together. There have been a lot of work on into it. Pastor Paul and the choir and the drama teams and the children's choirs, all the different parts that are a part of this. It's a wonderful blessing to be able to be a part of church that can even put this on. So without taking any more time away from what we're gathered for this evening, I'm going to begin our service with a word of prayer. Then Pastor Paul's actually come and going to lead us in a song entitled For the Sake of His Name as we begin our program together this evening. Let's pray together as we start. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege is ours to gather together this evening and to learn about missionary heroes. Lord, it is our desire as a church to be a supporting church of missionaries, to really get to know these missionaries, uh, to really get to feed uh, on their hearts and their, their desires to serve you in other parts of the world. But Lord, also, our desire is to train up the next generation of future missionaries, even some of these children who are singing. Lord, may it be in their, their future to be some of these missionary heroes. Lord, it'll be our privilege to glorify you by remembering the work of a servant and uh, both a man and a woman who served you faithfully in a country of Brazil. Lord, we're thankful for those that are gathered with us this evening. May all that's said and done bring honor and glory to your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. Pastor Paul. In a moment, we're going to sing a congregational song. But for those of you that have been with us for the last three weeks of our Missions Month, We've been hearing stories via video about Mr. Harold, the missionary, Harold Reiner, who went to Brazil, and uh, his wife and family, and generations afterwards. This man has left a heritage. We learned that word this morning. He left a heritage for many other missionaries. And he, as it said in your bulletin this morning, fruit continues on into eternity of what he did when he decided to give his life to the Lord. I've not seen my Brazilian friends here tonight yet. They've been here other Wednesday nights, but they are fruit of that ministry, actually, uh, from churches that he had an impact on. And uh, you've seen them here Wednesday nights. We've been talking. They do speak English. If they show up, make sure that you talk to them tonight, uh, even though we're always talking Portuguese with them. But uh, they are from churches that Mr. Harold had influence on and the seminary. And in the, in the course of the, of the story, you're going to hear a Brazilian preacher that they took along with them to their interior uh, mission works to preach. You'll hear him speaking Portuguese a little bit. It is actually the young man that uh, is our friend that should be coming tonight. They promised to be here. It's his great-grandfather. Believe it or not, what a small world. We met this couple as we were at a Brazilian restaurant here in town. They're here to learn English and to, uh, and they just uh, uh, were so excited to find out, hey, we knew the same missionaries in Brazil. 
So the heritage, the, the influence lives on. And I trust that you'll just get a glimpse of the heart of Harold and Joan Reiner tonight. In the, the, uh, the drama tonight, Harold will be portrayed by Ken Jernigan, Joan, his wife, by Linda Jernigan. And David Walker will be representing several different men throughout the, the story. Uh, he will use different hats, as you see there on the table, to let you know what man we're talking about. But it's also printed in your bulletin, in your bulletin, in your program, as you can see as we move through the different scenes, the different stories. That is a continuation of the videos that we've heard throughout the month. Let's stand together. We're going to have an opportunity to sing right now, and we'll have opportunity later on to sing another song together. The song is, For the Sake of His Name. We're going to sing the first and last dances. Mac Freighter left New York City in early March 1949. My wife and I were on board, heading for the land and people to whom God had called us. The twin-engine freighter had a mechanical problem, and an engine quit, prolonging our trip. Finally, we dropped anchor offshore as the sun was breaking through the early morning mist. The date? October 5, 1949. There it was, beyond the hazy shoreline, Fortaleza on the northeast coast of Brazil. And there beyond the city, 
Throughout the interior were thousands of lost souls. We hoped the Lord would use us to reach many of them with the gospel. We were shuffled over to a smaller boat and taken ashore. In our equipment was a kerosene refrigerator. We would be one of the first people in the interior to have refrigeration. At that time, Brazilians didn't care for anything cold, and ice was pretty much unheard of. I remember when Coca-Cola first came to Brazil. It didn't last long because the people were not accustomed to cold drinks. If you've ever had Coca-Cola at the temperature of the tropics, you would understand why it didn't catch on. For a number of years, we didn't see any Coca-Cola. But eventually, as the country developed, people started enjoying cold drinks. Coca-Cola redid their formula to appeal to the taste of the Brazilians and became a popular drink throughout Brazil. But we arrived before Coca-Cola. It was a two-day trip from Fortaleza to Jazeiro in the valley of the Cariri. The valley was named after the Cariri Indians, whom once had lived there. It was a beautiful valley that had rich soil and gets much rain than most of the semi-desert areas of northeast Brazil. That's where we'd be living. From there, we would reach farther interior. We settled in and started to learn the language. When the Brazilians laughed at our mistakes, we would laugh right along with them as, as if we understood the mistake. My goal was to be able to give my testimony in Portuguese within two or three months and be preaching in a year. A couple of months later, fellow missionary Jim Wilson said, You're ready to give your testimony at a meeting. We're going to Hiberon. I looked at the old 1940 Chevrolet truck that was loaded high with bales of cotton. Was that hard transportation? Was that the best Jim could arrange for the new missionary? Realizing that there would not be enough room for me in the makeshift wooden cab, I asked, where do I ride? Right up there on top of the cotton bales. Harold wasn't so sure if the cotton bales would be his salvation if the old truck rolled over or a cushion for a nice ride. He gave Jim a look of uncertainty and pulled himself up on the ropes that hopefully would hold the 65-pound bales in place. The old antique truck was sitting on a slight decline and there were wooden blocks in front of the rear tires. After the driver got behind the steering wheel, he shouted to his helper to pull the blocks. As he pulled the blocks away, the truck slowly started rolling down the hill. That's how he started the engine. Five of the six cylinders of the old engine caught, leaving a puff of black smoke behind. They were on their way. As the truck went down the dirt roads, unable to miss all the holes, it would tip to one side and the whole load would tip that way. Then it would shift to the other side. Well, you get the picture. It was a wild ride. And I, in my early 20s, was finding myself enjoying it. After several hours and several stops to pick up a passenger or two, a few chickens, and a goat, we arrived at the small town of Breju Santu, which translated into English is Holy Swamp. There we came to the end of the fun transportation. Senor Laro met us with saddled horses for our 20-kilometer trip to Heberon. They looked small and a bit undernourished, but riding near the ground, that appealed to me. The scantily padded wooden saddle was held in place by a loose, ragged girth. I wondered if the whole arrangement would, would maybe swing underneath the horse and I would even be riding in second class, even nearer to the earth. I was still American enough to think horseback riding would be fun. 
Harold soon changed his opinion as they rode on and on for what seemed forever in the hot, hot sun and became more and more sore riding on that hard saddle. That's when he started to think about aviation. Meanwhile, Harold was getting his first look at the real interior, the mud houses with mud floors. By the way, a mud house can be very, very neat. You'd be surprised how clean some of those mud floors can be. They get packed down and are swept just like tile floor would be. But viewing it for the first time was definitely a little shocking. Being hot and tired when we arrived at the house where the meeting was going to be held, I asked for a glass of water. Well, they brought me a glass of water, but it was so cloudy and brown that, that I could not see through it. After riding 20, 20 kilometers by horseback, I was ready to drink anything. So I drank the water. A short time later, we had supper. Now in those Brazilian homes at that time, the men ate separately from the women. The men ate in the front room and the women ate back in the kitchen. Let me see if I can describe the scene for you. There were four of them around the table, about the size of a card folding table. Jim Wilson was to the right of Harold, Senor LaRue sat right across from him, and the owner of the house was on his left. There was no electricity. All they had was kerosene lamparinas, little lamps made of tin cans with a wick coming through the center at the top. They didn't give much light, which is really a blessing when you don't know what you're going to be eating. We were sitting in what at one time had been chairs with wicker seats. The wicker was pretty much gone from the chair, and one of the legs I had was partially folded under. So I was trying to keep myself balanced on three legs while eating. Soon the lady of the house came in with a big bowl of very, very good rice cooked with lard. Then came a platter with a big fish on it. That caught my eye. Matter of fact, its eyes caught mine. <laughs> The whole fish was there. Head, transmission, differential, the whole works. Well, I had never seen that in the States. I sat there and I thought, now what? I took the fish and cut a piece out of the middle. The head and tail were still there. It went around to Senor Lauru, who whacked off the head and put it on his plate. I said to myself, well, good. I didn't want to be stuck with the head. When it came around to me, I took a small piece, but I, I kept watching that fish head. Senor Lauro, he took that fish head, and later I learned it was considered a delicacy. He popped it into his mouth. I saw one cheek bulge, and then I saw the other cheek bulge, and it went back and forth as he worked the meat off the skull. When he had all of the meat off the bones, he flipped the skull onto the floor. The side door was right behind Harold. When the skull hit the floor, a pig, a pig ran in through the door and dived under my chair to get the skull. He hit one of the three stable legs and, well, I went flying. What a day. The meeting went well that night. After the meeting, we were given hammocks in which to sleep. The next morning, Harold discovered the source of the drinking water. It came from the Asuji, a man-made pond that was behind the house. At that Asuji, the horses were watered and bathed, and the pigs wallowed. And we were drinking that water. Well, I blame my good health today partly on that drink. It helped build my immune system, you see. That was the beginning of a whole new life for this Western New Yorker. I even learned to enjoy one of the finest chowders Brazilian make, fish head soup. Sometimes they even managed to strain out all the teeth and other fish parts before serving it.
but it's very good. It really is. There's some kind of flavor in their head that, that isn't there in the rest of the fish.
If I were to, if I were to spend the rest of my life in Brazil, I thought traveling by, by horse had to go. An airplane, that's the answer. So I headed out to Fortaleza, the capital of the state. I signed up for a pilot's course, and soon I had my private pilot's license. Other related ratings for aviation would come later, such as our commercials pilot's license, seaplane license, and both American and Brazilian aircraft and power ratings. Our first furlough came in 1952. The idea of an aviation program on the mission field was presented to our supporting churches. There was a lot of enthusiasm, but no funds appeared to be on the horizon for the purchase of an aircraft. The time of returning to the field was approaching. Would it be back to horses again? I repeated to myself several times, Lord, give me courage. One evening, the phone rang. It was Pastor Glenn Givert from a small Baptist church at Whitney Point, New York. Hey, Harold, do you have your airplane? No, no, we do not. Why not? We just don't have the funds. Well, I want you to come down to our church. We have the money you need for the airplane. I was so excited, I think I dropped the phone on the floor. The next morning, I headed for mid-state New York. Was this God's answer to our prayer, or would nothing come of it? When I arrived at Whitney Point, I learned the background of the donated money. The Baptist Mid-Mission's June 1952 publication carried an article presenting the viability of the use of light aircraft for missionary transportation in the northeast region of Brazil. An elderly widow, Mrs. Tinkham, read the article and for several months prayed. Burdened for the lost in Brazil, she made a decision and approached me with a proposition. If the church would provide her with a proper burial at the time of her death, she would give her burial funds for the purchase of an airplane. The church agreed to this. A good plane was located, purchased, modified, and prepared for the long flight to Brazil. I first took the plane to Binghamton's small, grass, Tri-County Airport so Mrs. Tinkham could see the plane. She not only saw the result of her gift, but agreed to have me give her a ride. She expressed a desire to see the family farm from the air. So she, in her early 80s, climbed into the back seat, and her spinster sister sat next to her. What a thrill that flight was. The widow's might started the Baptist Mid-Missions Aviation Ministry that would see the Lord's blessing for the next 54 years. just a little food. He was just another nameless face among a multitude. There were thousands in the crowd that day, and he was just a youth. How could anyone have guessed how he'd be used. A heart of faith, a little much, a willing, eager lad. It wasn't much, it wasn't big, but it was all he had. 
After our furlough, we were back home in Juazeiro, in the beautiful Cariri Valley. One day, an invitation came from the town council of Asare, a town across the river from us. The invitation was for us to move to Asare. I will challenge anyone to find another place in the history of Brazil where the town council of a town was 100% Roman Catholic and invited missionaries to come and live in their town. Why would they do that? Well, I knew immediately. And as I sat and talked to the president of the town council, I said, you're inviting us over there. You need to know that if we accept this invitation, we will preach the gospel in your town. I know the reason why you're inviting us. Your interest is in the airplane. You see, a river runs between Asare to Juazeru. In the dry season, the river is low enough for vehicles to cross it. But in the rainy season, when the river is filled, Asare is isolated. They knew that if we moved our family to Asare, the airplane would also be based on their side of the river. They had their motives. We prayed about it and felt the leading of the Lord to move to Asare. The town council arranged to have an airstrip built. We waited until the drive season, when our earthly things could be tucked into the town. The day came. We loaded the truck with all our belongings and moved to the other side of the river. However, no one would rent us a house in the town itself. And so, about a kilometer out of town, we found a house that the owner was willing to rent to us. We wanted to begin services immediately, but there was no place for us to meet. So on Sunday evenings, we began services at our home a very simple house with a large yard. The yard would be our meeting place for many weeks to come. The sidewalk would be our platform. From there, we could sing and preach. People walked nearly a kilometer to get there. Some would never have attended a service in town with a priest's eye on them, but they'd come out of town for the meetings. I don't think Senor Catonio, the president of the town council, ever missed a service we had out there. Back then, we didn't worry much about time. Harold would teach and preach, and we would sing. And one day, Senor Belcantano said to Harold, The services are long, and we have to stand the whole time. If I can stand for an hour and a half to preach to you, you can stand for an hour and a half to listen. <laughs> You're not standing any longer than I am. If you don't like that, then do something about it. The people started coming out of the town carrying a chair or a little stool, so they had a place to sit. Time went on and the rainy season began. One night, when Harold was preaching with about 100 people there, it began to drizzle, and he kept preaching. We still have the Bible with all the watermarks from that rain. Folks put their hands on their heads. Some got under a tree. Some tried to get to a protected side of the house. But they stayed, they listened. And afterward, Senor Belcatonio wanted to talk with Harold. Look, the rainy season has started. We can't stand out here in the rain. To which I replied, Senor Bell, listen to me. If I can stand and preach an hour in the rain, <laughs> you can stand and listen in the rain. You're not in the rain any longer than I am. If you don't like it, do something about it. Well, he did. We soon had a use of a building in the town, and our meetings continued there.
Oh. 
he was a rough cut, rough looking individual who wandered around town like he owned the place. But if anyone could, he was the one qualified. He had been the delegado, the chief of police, elected several times to office. Unfortunately, he spent most of his time drinking, gambling, stumbling around from the effects of too much kashaka, which is sugarcane liquor. He had a goodly number of friends and perhaps the same amount of enemies, maybe even more. There were those who moved into the shadows when he passed by. His name was Senor Cartachu. It was early morning when I worked my way the full kilometer to the house of the missionary and clapped at his gate. Pastor Harold came out to where my arms were wrapped around the gatepost. I was dead drunk. What do you want, Senor Cartachu? With a mouth that appeared to be full of marbles and a pancake-thick tongue, I said, I want to be a believer. Oh, no, not this. For weeks we had been praying for the first convert in Asare. There were still no professed believers in the town. Would this man make a profession of faith and then disgrace the gospel with his lifestyle? How does one witness to a person so well known for smoking, drinking, and gambling? Harold invited him into our house, praying for wisdom. Senor Cartachu sat on a chair and a bit glassy-eyed. There would be no rushing here. I started out by saying, you should forget this idea of being a believer. I was envisioning this drunken bum walking down the streets of Asare, crying out, I'm a believer now. I could hear the townspeople laughing. After an hour or more of trying to convince him not to be a believer, his eye showed a slight sign of a tear. Or was it the effects of the drink he had recently had in town? Was he serious when he repeated? I want to be a believer. After kneeling by the chair, and in a much clearer voice, he talked to the Lord, asked him to be forgiven of his sin, and received Christ as his Savior. Now what? Some instruction? What instruction? As I continued asking God for wisdom, I said, Kartashu, you are going to walk back into town. You will be tempted to sin and to mar your new faith. When you pull a cigarette from your pocket and are tempted to smoke, stop right where you are, even if you're in the middle of the street, and talk to God. Say, God, I'm tempted to smoke. Do something about it, or I will smoke. Then, when you pass the spinning roulette wheel, and you'll want to enter and join your gambling buddies, stop where you are and talk to God. Say, God, I'm tempted to gamble. You do something, or I will gamble. And then there's that bar from where you came to our house earlier today. When you see it, stop where you are. Call out to God. God, I'm tempted to enter and have a drink. Please, do something or I will. No believer has ever asked God for help in the hour of temptation and been denied. Those were the simple words Harold gave him as he left our house. We decided to say nothing to anyone in town about that morning. Several of the men in town gathered every morning at the big wooden table just off the sidewalk from Maria's boarding rooms and restaurant to have coffee and eat her famous tapioca patties and some homemade linguisas. I often spent time with them and they always showed respect by keeping their language acceptable. 
Many were the opportunities to answer questions and refer them to scriptures. Days passed and Senor Cartashu didn't show up in town. A few noticed his absence, but no one said anything, though there must have been some comments around town. Harold was tempted to say something, but his decision to remain silent held. Then one morning, several weeks later, Senor Cartashu appeared at Dona Maria's. He was clean-shaven and had a serious look on his face. Several of the men got up to welcome their old crony back. Walking slowly up to the end of the long, rough-cut hardwood table, he began to speak to the group. His words captured the attention of all that were at the table. You know, for many years, I believed you to be real friends. But you were the ones who drew me into gambling, drinking, smoking, lying, and your kind of nightlife. I thought you were friends, but I want you to know that I have now found a real friend. A few weeks ago, I walked out to the missionary's house and told him I wanted to be a believer. I was drunk that morning, but I was convinced that what he had been telling us from the Bible was true. I was a sinner. That was pretty obvious. And I needed Jesus to save me from my sin. Pastor Harold tried to convince me that I wouldn't be a good believer, but he still showed me what I needed to do to have God's forgiveness. Before I left his place, I knelt down and confessed my sin and received Jesus as my Savior. The drunken bum had indeed been saved. Many of his buddies, though, were not too happy to hear about it. My eyes watered and I quietly left for home. What a wonderful experience to witness the change in the life of one considered to be the worst sinner in the town. God's choice for his first known convert, Anasare. We often said in our ministry that it was a good thing that it was God who brought his choice of servants to be converted, as we would never have chosen Senor Cartashu to be the first convert in town. As time went on, Two of his girls were converted and eventually went on to Bible school. Dona Selina, his wife, confessed that she had received the Savior years before, but had kept it quiet for fear of certain persecution. Then came the news. Word was spread through the town. Senor Kajashu had hanged himself in a barn. It was suicide, they said. We were shocked and saddened. How could this be? It was true that he had many old enemies from the past. Had he died because he had become a believer? Was he murdered? Many thoughts went through our minds. Later, the story changed as it spread through, through town. He shot himself, some said. Confusion made it impossible to find the truth. We would have to satisfy, satisfy ourselves with the statements made later by one of his son-in-laws. No one will ever know the real story of his death. But I know the story of his life following that day in our front room of the house that causes me to believe that if we know each other in glory, I will see him there. A sad part of the whole story, but it happened. In the summer of 2006, on one of our trips, we bypassed Juazeiro and headed for Asare. No more dirt road, it was asphalt now. We wanted to spend a little time there and see the changes that had taken place some 40 years after we lived and worked there. An old wooden two-story building pegged together with hard timber beams was where Senor Cartashu died. 
It had been reconstructed and converted into a museum containing many pictures and plaques that told the history of the town. On the second floor, I tried to identify the hand-hewn beam that, had been, that I had seen years before and from which they said that time Senor Cartashu had hanged himself. The curator showed us into a room and pointed to a chair and said, Senor Cartashu committed suicide in that chair. She showed us where the blood ran down the wall to the first floor. But we often wonder how he shot himself in the chair and was then found hanged. So the stories of his death are many, and the truth remains a mystery to this day. I believe he was lynched. His testimony was strong, and he had plenty of enemies that did not like that. One of the favorite songs of Brazilians is At the Cross. So I'm going to ask you to stand with us and uh, sing together this song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. called it a tragedy, a disaster. We spent three weeks in the small interior hospital, and now we are home, my wife, Joan, and I, the only survivors of the five who crashed in the mission plane three weeks ago last Sunday. Two that were killed were our own children, Sandra and Peter. Bernice Lind was one of our beloved fellow workers. I was at the controls, the pilot, and the one responsible for the lives of my passengers. And now nearly everyone is talking tragedy, disaster. I had been piloting a plane on the mission for over 10 years and had logged thousands of hours in missionary flying. But now I had been humbled, reduced to nothing. Three lives had been taken, two, our own flesh and blood. I did my best to save them. This I know. I'm reminded again of the scripture. He must increase, but I must decrease. I hope this will be true. On the second day in the hospital, they bring us the newspaper from the coast. Headlines, disaster. But they knew nothing of the peace 
that Harold and I were experiencing at that very hour. There's a weight on our hearts, but there's a greater peace and knowledge that with God, all is well. Lying on the bed, suffering fever and ache and pain that can only come from severe burns, I was reminded of the everlasting torment of hell's fire with no doctors or hospitals available. And my heart cried out, thanks to God for an eternal salvation. We talked freely with our doctors about this, and they listened. A day or two later, we were told about the funerals. Peter and Sandra were laid away the same day of the crash. They told us about the little cedar boxes that they used and hundreds of people that attended the funeral. The following day, our faithful colleague Bernice was laid away by their side. Years ago, we gave our lives to the Lord, and we meant it. Now, we had to ask. Now, God had asked for a part of it. Could we rebel? Could we complain? No. I sensed a peace that came only from above. The record player that the missionaries brought to the hospital room played softly. God leads his dear children along, some through the water and some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood, some through great trials, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. We had sung those words before, and now we were experiencing their truth. I looked over at Joan, and I gave thanks to the Lord for her. She was burnt a bit more than I was, but she smiled. She leaned over and quietly told me that if God wanted me to continue missionary flying, she was with me. She wants God's best. I was proud of her. As those first few days in the hospital went slowly by, you begin to wonder, is this ministry worth it all? We've lost two children. Our fellow worker has been called to rest from her faithful labors. Is it worth it? You were called to this work years before, but has all this cost too much? Then we began to receive visitors, many of them from the backlands, and bit by bit, our doubts began to slip away as we chatted from our bedside with those whose lives had been saved by the plane months before. Others came in from the interior stations where the very plane you had crashed in a few days before was the very instrument which God had used to take them the gospel. They had been converted, and in the wee hours of the night, we were trying to recall those experiences of the last years. They were too numerous, but it gave us overwhelming joy in the face of sorrow. On the 18th day, I was wheeled into the operating room for the remaining surgery on my face. The doctor was to make a cut or two and slide the right side of my nose back to its original place. I had, I had been impressed for a long time with the attention and care that I needed, and during the middle of the operation, I apologized to the doctor for all the work I had caused him there at the hospital. He scolded me, and then he thanked me for the many lives of his backland people that we had been instrumental under God in saving. I again was humble before God and grateful for these words. Christians all over Brazil and the States were asking, will Harold fly again? Will he even have the courage? I thought about it much. 
The answer was simple. It's from the heart, and I meant it. Whatever God asks me to do, I'll do it, regardless of the cost. Will this bring tragedy and disaster? No. Only the perfect will of God and the peace which accompanies it. Oh.
Well, we did continue flying into remote areas of northeast Brazil for many years after that accident. Some through the fire, some through great trials. That was certainly true in our ministry, but God gives us song. And we continued on. In the early days, we had traveled by horseback. And then when God provided the airplane, we could get to outlying places much quicker. But then there were places the airplane couldn't land, and we would then continue by jeep. And so was the case with Yashu du Algodão, which is called Cotton Creek. The zigzag trails were rough and dusty, but the thought of arriving kept us pressing on. The sun was just setting in the west as a small mud house appeared. Being close to the equator, it would be dark in a few minutes. No other house was in sight, but folks were beginning to arrive from several other trails coming in different directions from the house. Stools and logs were placed in a semicircle on the hard packed clay in front of the house and would serve as makeshift pews. A rough cut table was in front to be used as a pulpit. There were two small wooden benches on either side of the table. I would sit on one side playing the accordion with my hymn book balancing on top of my wooden accordion case. The tin can lamparinas with its cotton wick soak in oil sat on a little lace towel. It would be our only light. There would be some chit-chat, and then the service began. The service started with the singing of hymn number 376, a hymn well known by believers in Brazil. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. It was a pleasant surprise to hear a few singing with us. We knew that they had listened to their battery-operated radios and learned some words to the hymn. The prayer offered before the preaching seemed strange to most, there was no chanted Ave Maria. We often invited Pastor Francisco de Assis along to preach at some of our remote village services. He was one of the first graduates of our Bible school in Juazeiro. He was born and raised in the backcountry. Around these parts, and he had a real desire to reach the surrounding villages with the gospel. A posição que ele me colocou como usado por Deus. The preaching was simple. Partway into the message, the silhouette of a small man showed in the semi-darkness as he emerged from the path leading to the house. He was moving toward the table that served as a pulpit. In his hand was a Bible. Behind him was a woman. And behind her was a string of kids, the last of which faded into the darkness. The short man moved right up to the table and stood there while Pastor de Assis was preaching. He set his Bible on the table, but never opened it. He stood there like an altar boy, ready to serve the priest. Who was he? Where did he come from? What did he want? As all this passed through my mind, I was wondering if the people understood the gospel message. After Pastor de Assis finished preaching, I posed the question, Has anyone understood what was said tonight? and wished to profess his faith in Christ as his Savior. Immediately, the man standing at the table swung his arms around towards us behind him and said, Me and my whole family. Harold asked that they see him after the service. I played some more songs on the accordion while Harold sat down to talk with the man. As the man moved toward me, I leaned over and whispered to an elderly man sitting on a stool nearby, Do you know this man? He assured me that most of those present knew him. 
Senor Miguel Lorenzo was his name. Then Senor Miguel told me his story. I was born and raised at the foothills behind me. I have been until the present a macumbeiro, or witch doctor. Macumba, low-level spiritism, has been my way of life. I am an important person throughout these backlands, second only to the padre, the Catholic priest. Because of my position, he gave me this Bible, even though the people are not permitted by the Catholic Church to have one. He considers me part of the clergy. I baptized, gave communion, performed marriages, and carried on spiritual seances. That's how I made my livelihood. Some time ago, I read in this book, Non seja sincredulo, mas crenche. Be not unbelieving, but a believer. This made me think, why does my padre tell me to have nothing to do with believers? Why does he say that believers are goats and that only Catholics are sheep and are God's people, but the Bible says to be a believer? I made the long trip on foot to the city to see the Padre for an explanation. He had none. Then I heard on the little transistor radio that there was going to be a meeting at Cotton Creek. We decided to walk the 12 kilometers from our house and see what this was all about. Tonight, I listened and understood what was said and am no longer unbelieving, but I am now a believer. Amen. As we rode back home, the questions arose. Was Miguel Lorenzo's profession genuine? Can and would God save a, a macumbero? We wondered. We would wait and see. Some weeks later, Miguel Lorenzo arrived at our home. After a few words, it was evident that he had remained strong in the faith. He now wanted to have a culto, or meeting, at his house, even farther into the backlands of what would hardly be called a road. The journey would be even longer, as we would need to take some men along to open up parts of the path with machetes and axes and shovels. Harold would say, mission starts where the asphalt ends. Maybe he should have said that it starts where the dirt road ends. When we finally arrived at Senor Miguel's home, we noted that the large clay area where the meeting would be held had been swept clean. A small mud building at the outer edge caught my eye. It wasn't large, maybe eight by 10 feet. Each window was composed of several small glass bottles held in place with mud that had hardened solid by the sun. It was in that building that Senor Miguel had practiced his witchcraft for many years. As we approached the small structure, we noticed a small sign tacked above the roughly cut wooden door. On a piece of board was written with black charcoal, Esta e una igreja baptista, Pastor Miguel Lorenzo. A letter or two were backwards, some were upside down, but once again, God had done his work. A witch doctor was forever changed. In our retirement years, Wait, did we ever really retire? Anyway, it was 30 years later, after that first meeting, that we again visited with Senor Miguel. He had moved to a larger city and was a member of one of our Baptist churches there. He was serving as one of their lay missionaries, traveling throughout the backlands, preaching the gospel of salvation to the yet unreached. His zeal for the Lord had not diminished. During that visit, as retired missionaries, in the year 2006, 
we were constantly reminded of the psalmist's words in Psalm 126.2. Then was my mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord has done great things for them. It was 1949 when we first got off the ship for our first term of missionary service in Brazil. Now, 60 years later, we wonder who will answer God's call and be willing to go places where a rugged dirt road is as common as eating fish head soup and be willing to forsake all to take the gospel to unreached Brazilians.
Thank you, Pastor Paul. Thank you, choir. Thank you, readers tonight for so vividly depicting a story of a life that was surrendered. There are a lot of things that are racing through my mind, even were racing through my mind as I was sitting there listening tonight about the the testimony of a couple that just answered the call, that, that said yes when God asked them to go. And it's really that question that I'd like us to pose again. I'd like to pose again to you from Scripture that you heard the choir just sing, who will go? Who will go? And I think it's important for you, for you to understand that that's a question that God asks, not just that someone asked that wrote a song. It's a question that God asked very specifically in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is that depiction of the call of Isaiah the prophet to the ministry. And in it we have depicted Isaiah seeing God in his glory, holy, 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 holy Lord God Almighty. The text describes God being seated on the throne. And so he sees God in his holiness. And then he sees himself because his response to that is, woe is me, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he sees God in his glory and his holiness. And then he sees himself in his evil and his his wickedness. And then he sees redemption because as a result of that, the Bible depicts how an angel comes from the throne and, and touches his lips, and, and it says this in verse 7, He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And so he gets a glimpse of personal salvation and a glimpse of the depiction of, of redemption, which every child of God tonight has, that you've experienced. And so it's, it's the consequence of all those things that are happening there in that text that then leads up to the crescendo of it, when in verse 8 the text says this, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? In light of the holiness of God, in light of the the wickedness of man, and in light of the the wonder of salvation, of having your your sin cleansed, God says to Isaiah, Who will go? And Isaiah simply responds, With trust, with surrender, and with confidence solely placed in God. He says this, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. The only appropriate response for the child of God who understands the holiness of God, the wickedness of every heart, and the wonder of salvation. Here am I, send me. Lord, I want to spread this same news to others. And I would ask you tonight, is that your response? Whether that means to go to Brazil or to just go across the street, or just to go to that friend or that neighbor or that relative, is your response, hear my Lord, send me. This morning I mentioned the fact that, that one in four people on planet Earth have no Bible, don't know a Christian, and are not in the vicinity of a gospel-preaching church. That's hard to fathom in, in America. Just on the way over here, I probably drove by almost a half a dozen Bible preaching, in some sense, gospel preaching churches. And yet, one in four people, two billion souls today. Think about that. How many Bibles do you own? Right? How many Christians do you know? How many churches are there that you probably drove by on the way to church tonight that that preach the gospel? Maybe not exactly believing exactly what we do, but how many? And yet, one in four people in the world today their answer is zero, zero, zero. I know no Christians. 
I don't have easy access to a Bible in my heart language, and there's no church in my vicinity where I could go to hear the gospel. Let me ask you a question then in relationship to, you, to, to that, and that simply is this. Are you okay with that? One of our missionaries who was serving in a creative access nation, uh, to give you a hint, the most populous nation in the world, uh, she was serving there and she was in one of the largest cities in the world. And as she was serving and, and in a marketplace and looked out across the thousands of people that were there in that city, one of the thoughts that came into her mind was simply this, none of these people know Jesus. Not a single one of them. And then her conclusion was this, God's not good with that. And she followed it up with this thought, and I'm not good with that. And that was her response of continued surrender to continuing to serve in that nation that so needs Jesus Christ. And I think that personifies a little bit what our response ought to be. When we think about the needs of souls, when we think about the power of the gospel, when we think about the world that needs Jesus Christ, our response should be, God's not good with that. And I'm not good with that. And so my answer to the question that is posed in the Bible should be then, whom shall I send and who will go for us? My answer, your answer should be, here I am, here am I, send me. Will you answer that call, perhaps to just share the gospel with someone you know, or perhaps to surrender to God's call to missions ministry? Would you pray with me tonight? Father, thank you for this powerful reminder from the Word of God from the testimony of these surrendered believers and even from the songs that we heard or sang tonight of the power of the gospel to transform lives. And Lord, you've entrusted that same gospel message that you entrusted to Harold Reiner. You've entrusted that same message to us. And it is just as much the power of God into salvation today as it was in 1949. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be surrendered servants of yours who would say, here am I, send me. And may we, at the end of our lives, be able to look back like Harold did not that many years ago and see how amazingly you worked in and through us as your simple at surrendered servants. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for joining us at an unusual but blessed service. I'm so thankful for our choir and for those in the children's groups as well that led us. I want to say a special thank you to Paul and Susan Van Lowe uh, for helping lead our adult choir. I also want to recognize Colleen and Carol who have helped with our children's choir as well. Let's give all of them a round of applause for all of them. I also want to say thank you again for Dr. Odell and his wife being with us. Dr. Odell, of course, is the president of Baptist Mid-Missions. You heard a little bit of a taste of how Baptist Mid-Missions is connected even to the story that we just heard. And I'm going to actually ask him right now, if you don't mind, going back to your table, because that way when you're getting dismissed, we'll know right where you're at, and uh, you can certainly visit with them. They will be back with us tomorrow evening. There is a special evangelism seminar, and uh, we'd certainly love to have you be part of that. That'll be right here in the auditorium. 
time. We also have a Tuesday prayer breakfast with Dr. Odell Tuesday morning at 9.30. That'll be over in the fellowship hall. And then our Wednesday together, we'll be concluding with an international dinner at 5.30 in the fellowship hall, followed by the service with Dr. Odell over here in the auditorium. We'd want you to be as part of all or as much of that as you can be part of during the week to come. I've been moved because I was just looking at that picture and thinking we have been looking as a church at the picture behind me for weeks now in preparation for this. And now you see uh, the, the Harold and his wife, even with those two precious ones that God gave to them and took home to be with them prematurely, even in a plane crash. And I'm not sure if that was the plane or not, uh, but the Lord certainly is using their story in generations to go. You know, I'm reminded even as we say that, there were those that were heroes way back when. And in a culture that is clamoring to find the next celebrity and the next superhero, these are true heroes who gave their all and even their own children as part of that to follow Christ. And the question is, where are the heroes now? Would there be those that would be standing up and say, God, would you use me? Thank you for joining us this evening. We'd certainly love to have you back for any of the other missions events, including the one tomorrow night that God would have you to be, able to be a part of. As you go out, make sure you visit Dr. Odell and his wife. Thank you again for joining us as you're with us this evening.